Hello, and welcome back to Luther Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. Here on the Luther Witness Podcast, we share for you the articles on the Luther Witness website, but we also have special opportunities where we get to hear from guests who have written for the magazine. This month of September, you have two special guests. We actually got to listen to Dr. Adams. If it hasn't come out yet, it will come out soon. And he talks about the limits of archaeology, which was a delightful discussion that I had with Sarah. I'm sorry, Stacey Egger and Dr. Adams from the seminary in St. Louis. Today, however, we have with us Sarah Rinsel, who wrote an article on manuscripts for the September issue. And she's going to talk about manuscripts in a little bit, go beyond what we had in the original article in the September issue of The Witness. Before we do that, however, we want to give you a quick shout out to our podcast partners, KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere, kfuo.org. Check them out. We're really grateful for their support and help. If you're interested in getting a copy of this month's issue, which is on archaeology and apologetics, visit cph.org witness where you can subscribe or visit our website witness.lsms.org to learn more about the issue and why you might want a copy. So let's just dive right on in. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming in and thank you for writing the article. I know you really enjoyed this article on manuscripts, biblical manuscripts. You have a little bit of a background and a history with manuscripts in your studies. Give us a little, what was kind of your interest? Why are you interested in manuscripts? Sure. Yeah. So a few years ago, I had the opportunity to get my master's in medieval English literature at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And as a part of my coursework, I took classes in paleography and codicology. Paleography is the study of handwriting, and then codicology is the study of manuscripts more generally. And it's important to do that as a medievalist because all of your texts originate as handwritten copies, which may have been copied out again and again and again over the course of centuries. And so you have to rely on those in order to get to your nice printed copy of Chaucer, or in my case, it was Julian of Norwich was who I studied in particular. Fantastic. So what were some of your favorite manuscripts, like as you were studying the manuscripts and then the handwriting, what's a couple of key insights that would be interesting for people to know? Yeah. So the, so for the paleography class that I took, I had to go to the library and it was kind of, it was an interesting experience walking into the library and asking to see a a book, a manuscript that was six or 700 years old. And they said, oh yeah, oh sure. And then the librarian, the one I got to work on was actually a scroll. And she just pulled it out and rolled it out on the table for me and said, have at it. (laughs) That's terrifying. It was awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, and they have rules and things like you're not supposed to have nail polish on your hands and, but you are allowed to touch it. Really? Like, do you have gloves on or something? No, you don't even need to have gloves on. Yeah. So the idea is that The easiest way to not damage a manuscript is just kind of handle it normally, right? So gloves might cause you to tear or be rougher with something than you actually intend. And like the oils from your fingers aren't actually going to do that much. I mean, Wow, that's fascinating. I know. Isn't that cool? I mean, and I I think that speaks to how durable manuscripts are too. Mm -hmm. Like they're, you know, we think of them as these really fragile things, but they've been around a while and they'll probably continue to be around for a while, maybe long, longer than all of our computer servers. Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, so what I worked on in particular was a, and this is more of just an exercise in how to read and decipher old handwriting. So I had to look at a passage. It was, it was just like a, a long account of all of the kings of England. And it was written in Middle English in a certain kind of um, handwriting. And yeah, and I had to sit down and decipher what it said. It was actually quite difficult to do. What, what made it difficult? But, like, what, what about yeah. the handwriting that people don't yeah. expect? Because we kind of, I mean, as you mentioned in your article, mm-hmm. we're used to the idea of a printed script. It's mm-hmm. all very consistent. 
what made it difficult to decipher that script mm-hmm. for people who have no clue why that would be difficult? Right. Yeah. So there, the letters are all smushed together. There are lots of spelling variations in Middle English in particular. There aren't mm-hmm. any spelling rules. And the like just even like telling what individual letters are, it could vary. Sometimes the scribe would go back and forth between the shape of the letter, like the shape of the letter A or something like that. And yeah, it is yeah quite tricky, I I guess. And it kind of depends on it's not that's not to say that scribes have bad handwriting. It's more like, you know, sometimes it's hard to read grandma's handwriting in your Mm -hmm. Christmas card, too, because it's in cursive. But but yeah, but then in other cases, and this I go into this in my article more. In other cases, the handwriting is quite crystal clear, and it mm-hmm. ju- it really just depends on on what kind of script. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. That's interesting. Well, let's turn and shift into talking a bit about the manuscripts of the New Testament and the transmission of these manuscripts, the tradition of passing down the New Testament from the original autographs of the New Testament that those. Uh, documents that record what the apostles and Paul wrote down. Why do we even need to ask this question about whether or not we have accurate copies? What's why are we having the conversation about transmission of manuscripts? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is <laughs> that's the million dollar question I ask. And you know, talking about accuracy with something like poetry or like a work of literature is one thing, and then accuracy when you're talking about God's word is absolutely yeah. <laughs> totally a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I kind of think about this conversation in two respects like or in two two senses of accurate like there's there's accurate in the sense of was the original author being honest right mm-hmm. or you know what was everything made up how how do we know it happened 2000 years ago that's kind of one bone of contention that you see a lot and then the other one is okay well is it accurate in the sense of did was the manuscript copied out accurately every single time over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years and so I think I'll speak more to that second one. The first one is, I don't know. Yeah, the first one is just kind of not as interesting of a question to me, right? It's it's like we, we want to, I think it's better just, you know, it's, it's good to trust our original authors, obviously, because it's God's inspired word. But then, you know, we might also say, well, if if we're concerned about something getting copied out accurately, does that mean that errors got introduced, right? Mm-hmm. So if you imagine that you're a highly trained scribe and you spend eight to 10 hours a day, maybe more, sitting down and looking at an old version and writing out a new version in your very best handwriting, you know, there are little little mistakes are bound to creep in, right? Your eye might skip a word, and you so you drop a word or you drop mm-hmm. a letter, or you might swap the order of, of words or letters inadvertently, or like, or you might like kind of repeat a word twice or something, right? Just And we, we would think of these as typos. Little spelling errors, th- but the things that are so easy to catch that there's no real ambiguity introduced. And so sometimes you'll hear about different like different biblical manuscripts being corrected. And a lot of times it's just a new a more recent scribe correcting an earlier scribe's mistaken work cuz I don't know maybe that scribe was tired that day and working in the dark or working late or something like that. You can imagine. And that it's my understanding that most most variance is what is what scholars would call them. Most variance between you know, a d- different manuscripts of, say, the Gospel of Mark, right? Most of those creep in, and but they really only amount to differences in spelling, basically. Right. So, like inadvertent mistakes, yes, things that are yeah. not intentionally creating problems or not not intentionally causing harm to the text right, itself. Right, yeah. no deliberate theological changes, no deliberate, right. yeah, revisions. Yeah, I think there are, I mean, and there are, there are a couple of, of 
famous ones. Like I was reading about one clarification that I think happens in Luke, where it was originally Jesus's parents are referred to, and then later it Mm -hmm. got changed to Joseph and Jesus' mother or something like that, just to kind of clarify the idea of the virgin birth. But I mean, that was that was one of the only examples I could come across of okay, well that's a that's a deliberate change and was intended to clarify clarify a the- theological issue. But how might the transition of or tradition of passing down the manuscript of the New Testament differ from other non-religious secular manuscripts, especially yeah. in terms of you know we're talking about the reliability reliability of the text that we have. Mm-hmm. How does the reliability of scriptures compare with the re- reliability of say Caesar's Gallic Wars? Or right, right, yeah, and that's that's an example I brought up in the article. And I guess coming yeah, so coming into this as a medievalist, I was amazed at the amount of like the wealth of biblical manuscripts that we have available to us because in a lot of cases there just aren't simply there just isn't simply that much to go off of so in in my case one like one text a medieval text that i worked on there are only 3 manuscripts of it period so it you know it survived and you got to touch one of them which is yeah, terrifying right. yeah 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 <laughs> and and so it, and it, you know it survived you know just kind of Good fortune in a lot of cases. I mean, and then my other my other favorite story from this is another medieval example, but Beowulf. So the famous mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon epic. There's only one copy of it in existence, and it survived a, a big house fire in the 1700s. You know, really? so and so we very wow. nearly like would never have no one would ever have read Beowulf. Wow. But that's just simply not the case with the Bible, which I just thought was amazing that you can just see how much it was treasured and how faithful people were to it because it just cop- got copied out again and again and again and it's everywhere and from the get-go it's everywhere it's in different languages it's you know we have manuscripts from all over the, the ancient near east and very soon europe as well and and it seems like there's just no there's no meddling with the text either the other thing the other thing that i thought was that it was was really amazing about this tradition is it's completely continuous as well. So in a lot of cases, you have, say, like 10 manuscripts of something total, period. And the earliest manuscript is still a thousand years removed from when this ancient author was originally writing. So that's the case for a lot of Plato's work and for Julius Caesar, for Thucydides, right? A lot of these really, really famous ancient ancient authors, what we're going off of was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy you know, done over the course of hundreds of years, and we have no idea what may have changed in between then. I mean, I'm inclined to not be skeptical about those other ones either. Like, <laughs> I think, I think that, you know, most, most of the time, the people who are bothering to copy these things out were monks and monasteries, right? So they were very well educated. They knew what, they, they knew wisdom when they saw it, I think. <laughs> and so they were, they were pretty careful in, in preserving these sorts of things. But still, the, I think, there's somewhere around 6,000 manuscripts of the Bible, and that's just an astronomical number. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've heard somewhere, and I think I think it's John Warwick Montgomery, but he may not be the only one to make the argument, who basically says, if you, if you are going to contend that the transmission of the New Testament from earliest times to now is not accurate, then you basically have to dismiss everything we know prior to the mm-hmm. invention of the printing mm-hmm. press, because... We just don't have enough manuscripts in comparison to what we have in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really yeah that's a really good quote. I want to look that up. <laughs> but yeah, but that's I mean that's my sense too. Is it's a peculiar peculiarly modern attitude to doubt everything, right? Yeah, and right. and to just, and to sort of 
call into question the authorship of ancient things or the truth of ancient things. When in reality, like nobody before, I don't know, the 1700s was doing that. Exactly. Um, it's just yeah. not a way that humans think. <laughs> yeah. Usually. Yeah. But. Let's talk a little bit more about the actual manuscripts that we're that we are discussing here. There's a whole bunch of different types of manuscripts. You've got papyrus and codices, codices and all these other things. Kind of give us a rundown on the manuscripts of the New Testament. What are they, you know, kind of what are some of the terms involved with some of them? Sure, sure. Yeah, so there are two big categories of biblical New Testament manuscripts. There are the papyri. So those are the most ancient ones. Most of them date from the first, second century. Well, no, sorry, none date from the first century. Sorry. Most are from the second or third centuries. And they're made out of papyrus, which is a kind of paper made out of plant pulp, basically, and smushed together. And it's not very durable. And so all of the fragments that we have are, they're just little bits, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were discovered in places like ancient trash heaps, right? Kind of a cool story, archaeological story in and of itself. But so those are our oldest ones. Studying papyrus is really helpful because it it's what we have that's closest to the autographs. So when you hear the word autograph, you might think you're John Hancock, right? But the, the autograph just means auto, like self, right? And graph writing. So the original writing, the original author, you know, John or Paul or whoever actually, you know, put pen to paper. We don't have any of those. And the reason we don't have any of them, I think, is pretty, pretty obvious. They got circulated a lot and copied out a lot and wore out. But we do have evidence of, yeah, of from these different papyrus fragments that are that's very close to the original, right, in terms of time. And the earliest one we have is a fragment of the Gospel of John, which is just a few generation or a few a few decades removed from when John himself would have been writing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Then the other big category is before uh, you go on to the oh, next yeah. big category, let, let me. Explain a little bit about this idea of the manuscripts being passed around. I think maybe some people don't realize the original autographs weren't just kind of sealed away in a museum. That's how, that's what we would have done with them, right? We would have put them behind glass, seal them away in a museum. When when the evangelists were writing their their gospels, when Paul was writing his letters, he sent them out. What what happened to them? You know, where where did they go? Yeah, they would have they would have gotten passed around, you know, and copies would have been made from them and. Or maybe they would have been read aloud in churches or that mm -hmm. sort of a thing. But my my sense is that a lot of people got to touch them, you know, yeah. which is very cool. <laughs> and and yeah, and I mean, and recently this scholar named Craig Evans is making the case that uh, they would have been circulating for up to 200 years after they were written. So they're, I mean, so they're fragile, but not that fragile. And yeah, so which and which if they were circulating for up to 200 years after they were written, then that means that a lot of our earliest manuscript manuscripts have a very good chance of coming from from the original the original from the yeah, autograph. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah, the other great category of a manuscript, right? So that's that's the codex. So codex is a fancy word for a book. So some codices, that's the plural, were made out of papyrus, and you you can imagine them basically as you would imagine a book to be: pages sewn together into some kind of a binding, but. Around the fourth century, maybe a little bit earlier, vellum was began to be used to for these codices. And vellum is it's a kind of parchment. It's very, very high quality and very expensive to make. You it comes from an animal skin, right? So you'd have to go through this whole process of skinning an animal and stretching out its hide and then scraping all the hair off and then treating it with something acidic to whiten it and get rid of all of 
vitamin, oh, animal stuff. <laughs> and it would, and it turns into this very fine paper and is very, very durable. And that's what most manuscripts we have are made out of. And, and the, the, so the great codices are the obvious starting point for talking about this category. Your article primarily focused on four of these codices, the great uncials. Uh, uncials. Am I saying that right? I would say uncial. Uncial. But- okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> What's an uncial? Right. So an uncial is just a name for a kind of handwriting. There's there. So actually, I'll just I'll, to, I'll differentiate uncial from like a cursive script. Right. So uncial is it's all capital letters. It's written continuously. So there's no spacing. There's no punctuation. Nothing separating the words at all. And I guess people must have been used to reading that way. It's, well, isn't some of it also the, like they're primarily reading out loud? They weren't reading mm-hmm. quietly. So most of our our punctuation breaks are for oh, reading quietly is my understanding. I had never thought of it that way. I, I always thought of it as a safe space, space saving measure, but but no, that makes sense to me. That makes much more sense to me. <laughs> well, so they were yeah. used to reading out loud uh-huh. and then as you're reading out loud, it forces you to read a little bit slower. Right, right. Uh, but then I suppose also some of it probably had to do with the invention of the printing, printing press yeah. when you could be a little more precise too. But sure. Anyways, yeah. I, yeah. I always find it fascinating yeah. that they just smushed all the letters. Right, me too, me too. That sounds difficult to read to me, but so that's what that's what an uncial script is versus a cursive script, which is much smaller. It was developed eventually because it was quicker, right? If you're just if you're not removing the pen from the paper, then you can simply write more quickly. But it's also harder to read in its own way too. But anyways, but originally all of the Greek New Testament was copied out in this uncial script. And that's what that's kind of what categorizes the four great uncials together, is they're really remarkable for their clarity and for, for just for the quality of the manuscript itself. Like, okay, this is clearly an expensive endeavor in a lot of ways. And, but then they're also valued, of course, for their accuracy and their completeness and their great age. They're very, very old. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and so the, the, the idea here being many of the, you know, especially the, the papyrus, the papyri, those are just small fragments, small mm-hmm. pieces. Many of the, even the codic, codices I'm understanding is not, are not, full versions of the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. They might be a few books here and there, mm-hmm. but these are more complete in terms of containing most of the New Testament. That right, sort of thing, right, right. Okay. Yeah. What are the f- uh, four great uncials? Yeah, so they go they go by their Latin names, which they're, they're very handy names because they'll tell us a lot about where they come from. There's Codex Sinaiticus, and you can kind of hear the word Sinai in there. So that one comes from... The Monastery of St. Catharines, which is on Mount Sinai in Egypt. It's a monastery. It's a Greek Orthodox monastery that's been there since the 3rd century, 4th century. It's very, very old. Um, so that's that's the first one. Codex Vaticanus is probably the most famous one. And you can hear the word Vatican, Vaticanus, in there. And the Vatican Library has housed it since the 15th century. And then there's Codex Alexa- Alexandrinus which is from Alexandria, Egypt. And then Codex Ephraim, which you can hear the word Ephraim in there, which that might not be a familiar name or might not have any significance off the bat. And Codex Ephraim is really interesting because it's named for what the book originally was. So it's it's something called a palimpsest. And the what what happened was sometimes scribes would recycle manuscripts, so to speak. And so they would scrape off what was originally on the manuscript, in this case, 
the New Testament, which, you know, you, which I guess speaks to they had plenty of copies of the New Testament that they could recycle. When I read that in your article, I was just blown away. I was like, of all the things to scrape off, I, I don't know that I would have the courage to scrape off the New Testament and write my words over the top of it. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, it's still legible. Like you can still kind of see it really? underneath. But then. Yeah. The writings of St. Ephraim the Syrian are written on top of it. So, I mean, I guess you must, they must have really needed some paper. I don't know. <laughs> That's incredible. But, but yeah, but it also kind of gives me a sense to, and okay, this is kind of a side note, but of just how people thought about books in, you know, a thousand years ago or longer. I guess like the, just because something was really, really, really old didn't mean it was valuable. They probably said, oh, we have plenty of accurate wonderful copies of the New Testament. We don't need to save this ancient one, which to our ears would say, what are you doing? Yes. Yes. But anyways, it's just, I mean, I mostly say that as I think the scribes in these libraries and these monasteries knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> From, you know, anyways. Okay. So those are, those are the four great codices or the four great uncials. You'll hear them called both things. Codex Vaticanus had an interesting history that you were able, you were able to dig mm-hmm. up. Tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, that's one that's it's very very well traveled. Another thing, another way, another word that scholars use to talk about manuscripts is the word provenance, which just means where a manuscript has been or where it was from originally and where it's been. So who's owned it over the course of its two thousand years of life? And so Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus too, actually, they're we can't say this for sure. I want to believe it because it would be cool. <laughs> but it's possible that Vaticanus was one of the 50 Bibles that Constantine commissioned as um, the, the church historian Eusebius tells us that there's this growing, you know, the growing church in Constantinople just needed more Bibles. And so Constantine wanted to meet that need and get a whole bunch of Bibles copied out for them, right? And, the, you know, this is shortly after he legalized Christianity and the Roman Empire is becoming Christian very quickly. So Vaticanus is old enough to have been one of those manuscripts, but we don't know for sure. But so we could say it may have started its life in Constantinople. I think a lot of scholars say it may have started its life in Egypt too. And then after that, so assuming that maybe it did start its life in Constantinople, we do have a paper trail of, okay, it could have been moved to Rome when the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks, right? So there's this very famous story of their final capture of Constantinople, which is the undefeatable city in a lot of ways. That's kind of cool to think about, you know, some somebody making off with that manuscript, <laughs> running to Rome, you know, intentionally saving it from, from the Turks. But we, that's, that's kind of another part where that's conjecture, but it's interesting. The earliest record we have of it being in the Vatican Library, I think is 1475, or I think some scholars say 1481. So sometime in the 15th century, we know the Vatican Library has Vaticanus. But the story does not end there. <laughs> in the, in, under the reign of Napoleon, when he invades Italy, he takes this codex back to France with him. But thankfully, it was eventually returned to the Vatican Library. But kind of interesting that yeah that i guess by that point it was the value of this manuscript was known enough that napoleon would want it in paris <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible what a great story last question as you have looked at the manuscript tradition and and thought about how what we've received how these monks and these monasteries have passed it on what is it and how has it encouraged you in terms of understanding the the text that we have before us that we study that we 
we have in all these various English translations, but mm-hmm. but kind of the tradition that brought us this Greek manuscript uh, mm-hmm. so that we can have it in English. What, what have you, kind of what, what insights yeah. have you had from it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess just speaking as a lay person, I've never thought beyond comparing different translations of the Bible, right? So I know there are different merits to ESV or, you know, the reason why the NIV was commissioned or the King James Version is famous for its English, but may not have been like the most accurate tradition or based on or the most accurate translation or based on the most accurate rendering of the Greek in the first place. And I had never really thought beyond that. But then kind of combining my previous training as a medievalist with this and thinking about, okay, so where did, where are we actually getting the Greek from? The the phrase, the word of the Lord endures forever, just kept running through my mind. And it, I was really just very moved by how many faithful people have, you know, have, have touched the word of God, copied it out, remained faithful to it, valued it, and, you know, went, went to the effort of, of preserving it. It's really, really, really amazing. And, and yeah, and it also, I think, the, just the sheer difference between the biblical manuscript tradition and any other manuscript I've studied, right? It's just, this is truly the word of God. Just nothing, nothing holds a candle to, no other human effort holds a candle to what has been preserved here. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us on the podcast today. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And for those of you out there listening to the Lutheran Witness podcast, thank you for listening and learning more about the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, this Greek text that we have and that has been translated for us that we can hear God's word, receive it in our ears and, and receive this proclamation in which we receive also the forgiveness of our sins. As always, thank you for listening and learning how to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.